Hey, everybody, who loves coffee? I love coffee. I know you love coffee. And if you don't love coffee, you know what? You should probably start loving coffee. And I got just the coffee for you guys. You can go to lionsofliberty.com slash coffee and purchase a bag of The Morning Roar. Uh, it's a partnership we have with our friends at Anarcho Coffee. Uh, it's a delicious blend. I drink it every single morning out of my French press because I'm classy like that, and it's the best way to drink coffee. You don't have to drink it out of a French press. You can put it in your little fancy Keurig machine or your coffee maker, however you drink coffee. You can get it that way. Um, you're going to get the coffee, so go to lionsofliberty.com slash coffee. You're going to follow a link that's going to take you over there, which makes sure that we get little credit for kicking some business that way. We get paid. It's fantastic. So make sure you're buying it through this link. And I also want to remind you that there is a, uh, a code. If you join the Lions of Liberty Pride at the $10 or higher level, we have a coffee code that is going to get you 15% off every time you buy the Morning Roar. So check it out. LionsofLiberty.com slash coffee. Welcome to Felony Friday, a presentation of the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, John Odermatt. Felons, friends, and freedom lovers, welcome back to another edition of Felony Friday. That's right, your favorite criminal justice reform Friday show in all the entire world. I'm sure of it. And today's show, I got a great one for you guys. I'm going to introduce my guest in just a minute. Before I do that, I just want to remind you that on Alliance of Liberty, we have a uh, variety show format. So we have a a show on Mondays that is more libertarian philosophy type stuff with uh, Mark interviewing leaders in the liberty movement. And on Wednesday, we have more of a laid back, sort of shooting off the hip show hosted by Brian McWilliams. Uh, occasionally interviews, but a lot of times it's uh, Brian going through current events and uh, giving his perspective and, of course, the uh, libertarian perspective on current events. And uh, Friday, Felony Friday, where what I do here is we're talking about the failed criminal justice system. And the most popular format I have here on Felony Friday is one where I bring on individuals who have been through the criminal justice system to share their story, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and to uh, talk about obstacles they overcame. Uh, Just some incredible stories every single week here on Felony Friday. So today's episode, I can't believe it. We're getting so close to 200. This is episode 196 of Felony Friday. So that means the show notes page can be found at lionsofliberty.com slash FF196. And let's start the show. My guest today on Felony Friday is Drew Cook. Drew is an addict in recovery. He has noticed in the libertarian community a seeming non-existent perspective when it comes to ending the war on drugs, the perspective that would come from a recovering addict that that would have around that. One, coming from the uh, point of view of personal responsibility, really. And Drew has a passion behind this, um, and he's actually launched his own blog. It's called The Clean Libertarian. I'll provide notes to uh, his blog on the show notes page. Recommend you all check it out. Drew, welcome to Felony Friday. 
thanks a lot, John. Good to be here, bud. Yeah, man. Great, great to have you on the show. And I'm glad that you reached out. Um, you know, I have had on people in the past who've struggled with addiction, but we haven't really dug into like the, uh, you know, how a libertarian who's an addict um, would really look at the, uh, really the the principles behind how libertarians attack the war on drugs. And we've talked about this a little bit in the the pre-show chat, and we'll dive into it more during this show. But before we get to that, you know, I like to my audience to get really to get a background on you, to get to know you better, what you're all about, sort of your your path. Um, so if you could first start out with just sort of letting people know where you grew up, um, you know, what your formative years were like and stuff like that. Yeah, no problem. Uh, so I, I grew up in Yukon, Oklahoma. Uh, it's a little uh, suburb outside of Oklahoma City. And uh, man, it was just uh, my entire life. Uh, the best way that I can describe it is I never could quite fit in where I stood. Uh, no matter what I was doing, uh, no matter what I what I tried to, to do, it just never seemed to like pull off really well. Like, um, so one of the things I like to talk about whenever I share, get asked to share my story anywhere is the fact that like when I was, uh, my, my dad was a big time football jock and like, I really wanted to emulate him a lot when I was a kid. And, uh, so I tried out for football, but when you're like a chubby kid running up and down the field, it's not too much fun. So I just, uh, kind of, kind of didn't do the sports thing. Uh, I tried skateboarding, broke both my wrists and I still can't do an Ollie to this day, if you can believe that. Um, <laughs> But uh, man, I, I, everything I tried to do, it just never could quite uh, quite fit with me. And uh, I got a, I started getting sent to these psychiatric doctors because my parents were like, "Yeah, there's something wrong with this this boy. You know, he, he doesn't act right." And uh, this was around the time of the experimental behavioral medication for uh, AD, ADD and ADHD. Yeah. And um, so, like, you how, know, I how, got, how old were you? Sorry to interrupt, but how old were you? Oh, you're good. Yeah. Um, I was about uh, 12, 12 or 13. I, I believe I, I could be wrong on that, but I, I believe. Um, and uh, they, they ran me through the, the usual gauntlet of medications and they finally wound me up on one called Dexedrine. And uh, I remember taking this pill and feeling like Superman, like finally, I finally felt good. You know, I finally looked in the mirror and I was okay with that guy that I saw didn't stop me from acting like a weirdo. Um, we were talking about it in the, uh, in, at the, before the show, but like on, on one of those articles I posted, I talk about sneaking downstairs and getting into my dad's cart and the cigarettes. And I did that completely wired on this, uh, behavioral medication when I was mm -hmm. a kid. And, uh, so I got it instilled in my head that in order for me to feel okay on the inside, I need something on the outside. And, uh, thus began the life of a drug addict. And, um, so, you know, I, 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 did what I did. I chased what I chased throughout my, uh, juvenile and adult years until I finally wound up in the rooms of recovery and, uh, learned about some personal responsibility and how to work the steps. And, so, uh, just to, just to clarify. So, so, uh, really taking this medication early on in your life, it made you feel like you needed something to feel normal that you weren't able to do it without, without that. Or is it, am I reading that right? No, no, you, you, you touched on that. It's really hard for me to describe outside of the fact that I think what it is more than anything is that I, uh, I never, for whatever reason, developed really good coping mechanisms. Right. So, um, 
once I was introduced to something that could instantly make me feel better, mm-hmm. regardless, uh, it kind of became this like unhealthy coping mechanism, if that makes any kind of sense. So how did you first get into, you know, recreational drugs or, you know, illegal street drugs, whatever you want to call it? I remember like the first time I smoked pot, I was uh, actually, my mom was real, real strict, but, uh, you know, we were Southern Baptists. And so she let me go to all these church functions and I met a friend there and uh, he was like, Hey, come stay the night at my house. And I asked my mom for permission. She said it was cool. And we went over there and he had some, he had some weed, you know, some pot. And uh, it's the first time I smoked weed. And, you know, I grew up in the, like the real hardcore dare era, you know, like mm-hmm. we're just Ronald say no. Reagan's war yeah. on drugs. Just say no. All of that. Yeah, man. Yeah. Uh, after school specials. And right. so, I'm thinking that this pot is going to be like just as bad as uh, heroin, <laughs> you know, like yeah. I'm running the risk of overdose, you know, or whatever else. And I grew up the same way, man. I, I had the exact same, exact same background. For, first time I saw pot, I thought I was seeing like heroin, honestly. Like I thought it was, <laughs> yeah. I thought it was like just as bad. I'm like, Oh my God. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's wild. The, uh, the vilification that they did with that, mm-hmm. but that particular substance um, and I, I don't know if you had much the same thought as I did, but when I did it and the worst it was, was like, I had the munchies and I was like really tired and paranoid. I was like, mm-hmm. yeah, if, they're, if they're lying about this, they're lying about everything else. And I kind of maintained that. And so, um, from that day on, I was never, uh, I never had any kind of fear, uh, or nervousness whatsoever about trying anything that was put in front of me. And, uh, that was reflected very much so, you know, as I progressed throughout my addiction. So what you started out with, with marijuana, obviously, mm-hmm. I think even people today who are, you know, I would say advocates of the war on drugs still recognize that marijuana is probably the, uh, the safest drug, but did, did you, did you, uh, make your way into some, some harder drugs from there? Um, yeah, yeah. I, uh, I, I tried everything and, and I, I don't, want to try to like paint myself out as being some kind of like Hunter S Thompson type of cat. But you know, it's just, I, I just wanted the, what I wanted was to not be in my own skin. Right. And, uh, every Avenue that I could find to get out of reality and into an altered state of consciousness or, or being, you know, I, I chose to do that. And that took me through, I believe every, known drug that was in my neck of the woods, you know? And so, uh, what started out as recreational drug use and having fun on the weekends turned into having fun on the weeknights and that turned into having fun during the work day. And then what turned out, what started out as just having fun, uh, ultimately ended up being about chasing oblivion, just numbing, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't really know if I could pinpoint, you know, for you where that happened. I don't know if I could tell you on this day, John, uh, it stopped being about fun. I just know that it happened. And when it happened, uh, I really didn't see a way out, you know. And so um, what ended up, you know, what, what ultimately ended up happening is um, out here we have uh, detox facilities, and obviously jail, you know, that's why we're here. And, uh, um, uh, I went through the jail system, criminal justice system. I ended up catching some charges, 
caught two felonies uh, for attempting to obtain CDS by forgery, which is just fancy terminology for, you know, forging a prescription. Hmm. And, um, you know, the state had lots and lots of suggestions uh, about what I needed to do to fix my life, but none of it, none of it worked. Just, just curious, how did they catch you with that? Did you, I mean, did you have an actual doctor's pad that you were forging a prescription on, or like what? Yeah, uh, we, you know, it was uh, something that was handed to me by people that I knew at the time, you mm-hmm. know, and uh, I don't know how they got it. I don't know how they did all that, but um, I, I just remember being in the pharmacy and mm-hmm. talking to the pharmacist and just chatting it up, you know, like nothing's wrong. Everything's going great. Just waiting on my prescription. And I remember feeling a hand on my shoulder and hearing the words, you know, put your hands on the counter and don't make any sudden moves. And, uh, and just looking at that pharmacist, like, you gotta be kidding me. Like, you're good. You know, they kept me there. They knew what was going to go down. And, uh, yeah. So how much time did you end up serving or? I, I lucked out. Uh, I lucked out the first, the first offense. I, you know, I didn't learn my lesson the first time I got the same charge twice. The first offense I got uh, deferred sentence, which is just like, Hey, be good. You know, gave me like some light community service and, and stuff like that. They said, be good for a certain amount of time. And this all goes away. Uh, about a year later <laughs> to the, almost to the day. Exactly. I caught my second charge. And then uh, that was looking like it was going to be, uh, a lot of prison time, you know, um, just so happened. I had the same damn judge who was like, who last time he had told me, don't ever come back in here again. Mm-hmm. And here I was. And, uh, I, I don't know. Uh, I don't know what the majority of your viewers, like what that demographic is like or, or the listeners, but, uh, or what they believe in. But, uh, at this point in time on that second charge, I had enough of experience of going to the detox facilities and, and uh, being introduced to some of the people in recovery. And they all talked about this thing called surrender, uh, this act of surrender and what that looked like. And um, I remember sitting in the holding cell uh, waiting to go in front of the judge for the final sentencing. And I remember hitting my knees and I don't know, I don't know who or what it was I was praying to, you know, I don't know uh, specifically what that was. I just remember saying, you know, whatever needs to happen here, let's just do it, you know, and uh, come to find out the DA and my public defender were actually golfing buddies and they cooked up this really sweet deal and I got a second chance and uh, yeah, it was a gift. That was a gift. I got to walk free that day and I got community sentencing, which is kind of like a, it's supervised probation, but it's a little bit on the lighter side, you know? So, uh, yeah, it was a good deal. But you, do you still have the felon label attached to you? Will it show up on a background check? Yes, yeah. it will. Mm-hmm. Yes, it will. Has that impacted your ability to get employment and, and housing and things like that? Um, it's definitely affected my ability of employment. Um, I have a daughter. I have a 10 year old little girl. She's my world, man. I love that, mm-hmm. that little girl. And, uh, like, you know, we just <clears throat> a couple months ago went and did the back to school. And, uh, you know, one of the things I wanted to do was volunteer to come up there. They have a, 
little local, I think they're called watchdogs. And it's just dads who volunteer their time to walk around the school and make sure nobody comes in or anything like that. And uh, I was denied on account of my background. And that kind of sucks, man. Wow. Like I can't participate in my kid's school uh, because of that. Uh, you know, uh, I suspect, although I do not know that there's been a couple of promotions I've been passed up for. I have pretty strong suspicions for that, but, uh, on account of my background, mm -hmm. uh, and I do know that there's definitely been at least four jobs that I've applied for that I was denied on the grounds of my background. So was that a, a turning point for you that, that second, that second arrest or at, at that, what point did you, did you start to take sobriety seriously? Did you, uh, you know, this, uh, one of the things that happened to me, I, I was in jail and uh, I was calling my mom. I was, I, at this point, I think I had like three, three months clean. Right. So I'm calling my mom. My mom had, when I was out there using, she had uh, gotten temporary custody of my daughter through, through the court system. And uh, she was still my get out of jail free card, or at least I thought, you know, so I'm calling her up and I'm asking her like, Hey, where's, why isn't there money on my books? Um, how come I'm not out of jail yet? Like what the hell, you know, it's all about me, 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 I, I, I. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and she said, you know, let me, let me stop you for just a moment. Um, she said, you haven't asked me about your daughter at all. And I said, okay, well, how's she doing? She said, well, she called you today. And I don't know if you've ever been to jail, but you don't exactly get incoming phone calls. So I didn't know what she meant. I, I was kind of baffled. And she said, I bought her a toy cell phone and she talked to you for 15 minutes on the phone. And, um, you know, I kind of, uh, that was a gut shot, man. Um, especially when you're in jail, you're trying to put on a front and you're trying to act really masculine and macho and all that, you know, you don't want anybody to see your weakness, but man, it, I, I broke down right then and there, you know, I couldn't take that one. And, uh, that's, that's what kind of drove it home for me. Uh, but there's more at stake here than, than just my selfish ends. And so, uh, yeah, that was a turning point that I can remember for sure. So you're also a libertarian, right? So correct. At, at what point did the libertarian philosophy come into your life? Was this something that you, you had for a while before that or? Yeah, I think, out? uh, John, I think the majority of my life, I've pretty much always been a libertarian. Mm -hmm. It was just for so long, I never knew what to call it. Um, uh, during the Ron Paul years, like when he was, you know, running for president, like dude, I was not interested in politics at all. So I wasn't paying attention to that. Mm -hmm. uh, I just knew that I didn't like the federal government. I didn't like government, period. And uh, I, I was I was always ready to protest or you know get get loud about being anti-war uh, especially you know anything involving with iraq and, and all of that and uh it wasn't until i'd say about five years ago that uh, i got really turned on to libertarianism mm -hmm. uh a buddy of mine kind of kind of said hey man you should check out this political philosophy and i just kind of here and there picked up a couple podcasts and then that turned into books. And then all of a sudden I'm reading Murray Rothbard and nieces and mm -hmm. it's a wrap, <laughs> you know, it's crazy uh, how it happens. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is. I think, I think for me, my, my, my biggest red pill was, uh, was the book, uh, the left, the right and the state by Lou Rockwell. That's, I haven't read that yet. Wow. It's, yeah. it's a read. 
that is a read right there. Mm-hmm. So we, we talked about um, leading up to this. Uh, one thing I definitely want to talk about with you is sort of this, um, you know, how libertarians look at personal responsibility and drug use and things like that. And I mean, people who are listening to this podcast, there's people who are on the left progressives, people who are on the right conservatives. Obviously, there's a lot of libertarians as well. So just for those of you out there, just some background on on what Drew and I are going to talk about. Um, there, there are a lot of people in the libertarian movement who take a very, I would say, abrasive uh, way to communicate the uh, uh, anti-war on drugs message and uh, you know, just wearing T-shirts like legalized cocaine, legalized heroin, things like that, and basically just putting it all on, you know, people can do whatever they want to do with their body, which I would agree that's true. I, I think you would agree that's true. But uh, yeah. you, you've written, uh, a, a, I think, a very compelling blog post on it that I read. And uh, as if you could kind of expound upon your... Uh, your viewpoint uh, around that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I personally believe uh, without any shadow of a doubt that every street level narcotic has a real world free market application, Uh, not just for getting completely obliterated out of your mind, but there's actual purposes for these narcotics. If there wasn't, they wouldn't be taken. That's just my opinion. Uh, However, when we start talking about these things, when we start talking about legalized recreational cocaine, like absolutely we should advocate for that. But at the same time, I think that it would do the libertarians a uh, great deal of service if we offered some nuance along with that. Uh, And what I mean by that is just because we advocate for legalizing every Narcotic does not mean we are advocating for a normalization of drug addiction in our society. Mm -hmm. Um, A society with rampant drug addiction problems is going to be prone to have a failing economy. Um, As any good, healthy economy is only going to be as good and healthy as the people contributing into it. So um, one of the things that, you know, we can look at as far as, what would that look like for us? Uh, you know, we here in this country had have a history of uh, legalizing a particular substance that was prohibit, uh, you know, under the prohibition era for mm-hmm. so long. And uh, I kind of delve into that in one of the in one of the posts. But uh, you know, I believe it was in the 1800s. Uh, Americans were drinking. I think the consumption was eight gallons of alcohol a year uh, per capita. And that was the booziest on record for us. The prohibition era came along in the 1920s and the fluctuations and and granted, you know, it's an outlawed substance. So who's being honest about that at that time, Mm -hmm. but based upon the studies done at the time, we were still well under the worst it's ever been. And, um, you know, that's that's to be expected, especially whenever you outlaw a particular substance. But it's on the other side of that. It's whenever prohibition went away and alcohol became completely legal mm-hmm. that we see nothing coming close to the 1800s uh, alcohol consumption uh, of Americans. And so what I think that is, is a very telling indication that humans are going to always do what's best for them. Uh, whether a substance is illegal or not will not stop people from using it. I mean, mm-hmm. we've been 
40 plus years in a war on drugs. I mean, how many trillions of dollars? We are no closer to solving this problem now than when we first began. Um, and so, you know, why not entertain the thought of what happens whenever we legalize this? What happens whenever we stop ruining people's lives over the possession of a plant, uh, over the possession of anything for what really breaks down to a mental health concern? Um, I, I think that that's worth looking into. Um, you know, a lot of people are really quick to point to Portugal, and I will too. Portugal is a wonderful, uh, wonderful, you know, example. However, we aren't Portugal, <laughs> you know, so we can look at the successes over there and, and we can um, hypothesize that we would see some of those similarities. Mm-hmm. But uh, we actually have real world history in this country of prohibition and relieving prohibition. And I think that we can stand on that. Yeah, that is a that's a great point you bring up there with comparing the United States to other countries. People do it all the time for for gun control. They'll say, "Oh, you look at Japan. You know, they have banned guns and there's no crime." And but you're exactly right. The United States is a very different country. There's no other country out there like the United States. And right. uh, I, you know, I I don't think it's. I don't know if legalizing drugs the way that Portugal has or decriminalizing drugs the way that Portugal has would have the exact same. Of course, it wouldn't have the exact same. I don't even know if it would have a similar outcome. Um, there might be some rough patches for a while. I'm, I'm, I'm mm-hmm. not sure. Um, but like the way I like to bring this up to people, especially those who aren't libertarians, is – and we're seeing it happen more and more, and it's, it's very tragic, is we see it with overdoses. And it's really a public safety issue. And you look at people who uh, – a lot of people who are uninformed when they look at um, a drug addict who maybe ODs on heroin uh, or ODs on you know, Oxycontin or whatever. Um, they think it's just that drug that caused the overdose when, right. I'm sure as you know, in reality – it's actually most of the time a tainted drug or the dosage of the drug is different than they're used to or they just got out of prison and they haven't been taking the drug for a while and get more than they um, are able to for their body to process. And yeah. it's, it's really a, a, a quality issue and the quality issue is created by, by the black market. And an example of this, a very tragic example of this happened in Pittsburgh a couple of weeks ago. I actually talked about it on last week's episode, so I won't go into detail, but a lot of people look at cocaine as a, a fairly safe drug. You don't hear about people ODing on cocaine. It's sort of a white-collar drug. People on Wall Street use it. There were three people who OD'd on cocaine in Pittsburgh because it was tainted with something, fentanyl, something like that. Um, and uh, it can happen just like that. And it is, no matter how you look at I'm not, you know, I'm just talking to listeners out there who may be questioning this. No matter how you look at illicit drugs, um, somebody who makes the decision to use cocaine or use heroin or use some uh, prescription pills that they've obtained illegally, um, they don't deserve to die. I mean, that's just ridiculous. Anybody who thinks they deserve to die is a crazy person. So why would you not want um, to fix this quality issue? And the only way to do that is by bringing this out of the back alleys and, and legalizing it. That's right, hundred percent. You don't. Uh, you don't. Currently, there's no recourse for the consumer uh, mm-hmm. whatsoever. You know, you buy a tainted product. You buy a tainted product. 
uh, nine times out of ten, you're not going to find that that drug dealer, uh, you know, who, who did it or, or, or proving it is another story altogether. Uh, however, if I'm able to walk into, let's say, a CVS and I buy a product and I have a receipt for that product and I go home and I ingest it and that product that, that I ingest or consume or, or however, whatever method that I use is different from what is labeled. I now have a have you know grounds for for you know taking a case against them and uh, and having an advocate in the court system and, and letting you know uh, a judge decide because currently man if you you OD and die you OD and die and it's a sad thing uh, you know especially for those of us who go into recovery it's just it's a reality if we see that you know constantly and uh, you have to wonder how many of these people would still be walking around today if. A, they were able to know 100% what dosage, what milligram, what contents were in their in their uh, drug that they were using. But you also have to wonder how many of these people would still be here if they were able to sit down and have a rational, realistic conversation with a pharmacist about the drug that they were intending to purchase and consume, mm-hmm. rather than, hey, this is good stuff, man, be careful. I mean, that's the, that's the extent that you will get from the dope house, you know, uh, rather than, Hey, listen, uh, if you've been taking these other medications within the last, you know, uh, week, or if you are dehydrated or if you haven't eaten, like these are the side effects that you can expect to see. And so this is a safe way to use this drug. It, it's, there's a lot of net positives that could happen if, uh, if legalization were to occur, mm-hmm. you know? Curious to get your perspective on something. Um, I don't know if you had this experience um, in your past, but you know, people refer to marijuana as a gateway drug, which I don't really like to use. I don't agree that it's a gateway drug, but I will agree that you know, if somebody does start off using marijuana, which is where most people do start, I think um, the vast majority of, of people who end up using harder drugs start with marijuana, and what brings them or what can bring them to the, the exposure to those drugs is they're having to buy that, um, you know, on the black market. They're buying it from a, a shady character. And those shady characters, drug dealers, are not just going to be selling only marijuana. They're also going to be That's selling right. pills also, whatever else. So do you think that that sort of uh, does kind of the black market because marijuana is illegal along with the other things sort of makes it into a de facto sort of gateway drug? I think uh, I think it's just the the fact that you demonize something for so long, you vilify it, and for whatever reason, somebody smokes their first bowl or their first joint, whatever the case may be, and they realize mm-hmm. it's not such a bad thing. You've now given them a ticket into the counterculture, and so why wouldn't they pursue those ends? Like, mm-hmm. I don't think it's a gateway drug, as in it unlocks some magical, you know, uh, thing. But I definitely think. Uh, the lack of realistic dialogue being put forth, especially to kids in school, uh, you're setting them up for failure with that type of stuff. And uh, and uh, if there was rational conversation happening, like, hey, weed's probably not that bad, but you should still probably wait until you're older to use it, you know, uh, maybe we would see a little bit of a difference there, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I, I strongly believe... Uh, Gateway or not, you know, all, all that aside, uh, people, there are certain types of people who have this thing uh, that, that people call addiction. 
you know, there's mental markers that are present. There is definitely a certain personality type. And I don't think that it doesn't matter what their first, you know, drug is. They're going to do what they're going to do. You know, uh, I can't tell you how many people I have seen walk into a meeting or, or, or elsewhere who are wringing their hands, wondering how it all happened when they just started out on a couple of Lord taps and before they knew it, they're on heroin, you know? Um, so if we really want to talk about what's a gateway drug, maybe we should start looking at that type of stuff as well. Yeah. And, so, and you're an advocate for, um, the 12 step program, right? Uh, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, well, I guess let's just dive into, I know you talked about um, in your one of your first blog posts, maybe it's your first one, about the reasons why you started the Clean Libertarian. If you could kind of lay out, you know, really your passion for it and what's your, I mean, what's your vision? You could go a lot of different directions with it. I think the content's great. Okay. Thank you for that. I appreciate it. Um, what brought me to it is actually um, there was, I started to notice a trend that whenever drug addiction got brought up, because you know, you know, us libertarians, we love to just argue <laughs> about mm-hmm. what the ideal libertarian landscape looks like. And, uh, anytime the topic of, uh, drug addiction and, uh, you know, drug, le- drug legislation comes along, uh, when the question of, well, what is to become of the drug addicts gets mm-hmm. brought up, there was no shortage of the term, uh, Darwinism. Um, and that is, it's tough, man. It's tough being somebody who, thank God, uh, made it. I made it to a uh, to people who could show me a better way to live. And thank God, Darwinism didn't have to take effect in order for my life to change, um, you know, or my family's life to change, for that matter. I think that if we were to uh, have realistic dialogue about what we could expect and said libertarian society free from legislation involving narcotics that maybe we could bring more people into the fold of this movement and maybe we could bring some more nuance to this topic as well uh that hasn't yet been realized Mm -hmm. and so that's kind of the uh that's kind of the breeding ground for the uh for the website uh for the blog um i kicked the idea around for a long time before i actually did something about it and i just kind of started doing it um more than anything, though, the ultimate end goal isn't to like get everybody to come like the page or share the content. I just want to see people talk about it. I want to be able to see widespread rational discussion, which is maybe a tall order in the liberty movement at times. But I would like to see that uh, involving drug addiction and recovery. Um, you know, a lot of times we, we like to talk about why the state shouldn't get involved in that type of thing is because people should have their ability to have uh, self-determination and, uh, you know, freedom, freedom of consumption of whatever they so choose. Mm-hmm. But the reality of the situation is, is that um, the state's solution when it boils down is to lock you in a cage, label you a felon, hammer you with tons of fines to where nine times out of 10, you're going to be right back in prison because you can't pay that stuff. And ultimately what they're going to do is force you to go to a 12 step program, you know? So at the end of the day, the state themselves are admitting we don't have a solution. Mm -hmm. And what I'm saying is that that organic recovery process exists. 
with monumental success across the board uh, and it's helping people. And it's absolutely, uh, I, I don't want to give the impression that I think that that's the only way to uh, find freedom from addiction, but it certainly helped me. And, um, and I know that there's other, other means and other ways, but locking people in the cage uh, to where they could possibly die. Like our, our local, I think we're in our local county jail, we're up to nine deaths this year. Uh, over 80% of those people that died in jail were in there for the possession of a narcotic and nothing else. And uh, that's a problem. That's a problem. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Locking people in a cage. I like the way that Larry Sharp puts it is, I mean, unless you would do it yourself. So if you saw somebody on the street using an illegal drug, would you take them to your house and lock them in your basement for, for doing that? <laughs> no. no. I mean, would anybody no. actually say that? No. So so why are you going to use the state to, to yeah. do that, to do the exact same thing? It's It's ridiculous. Yeah, it's crazy. Absolutely uh, Drew, crazy. Drew, if you could just uh, plug your site and I don't know if you're in social media, plug anything else you need to. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the clean libertarian.com. That's the, uh, that's the site. Um, uh, that's where the blog posts get put up. Uh, all the uh, links to the social media pages are there and uh, yeah, just come be a part of it more than anything. If, if you are a libertarian and you are in recovery, please reach out to me because I don't want to do all this on my own. I, I would like some help. I would like some yeah. uh, contributing authors and stuff like that. And so I'm very open to that. Well, I, I know a couple others who, uh, who a couple of libertarians who are in recovery. So ho- hopefully they reach out to you. Right but, on. Uh, yeah. Well, thanks for coming on the show, Drew. I really do appreciate it, man. Thanks, John. I want to thank Drew Cook once again for, uh, for coming on the show and having the courage to share his story. You know, I think, uh, you know, a lot of times, you know, maybe I, I don't give the people who've come on this show to share their story, to really open up from their, their heart, open up uh, mistakes they've made in the past. Um, they, they deserve all the credit, man. I'm just the guy here recording this and, uh, and pushing it out to you guys. But the people making the difference on this show are my guests. And that is the freaking truth. So I really, really, really want to encourage you to check out The Clean Libertarian. Uh, check out those blog posts. He's uh, got like, I think, nine or, or so up there. Maybe more than that now. But uh, he's planning to do a lot more writing. Uh, Drew is a smart guy. And he, he brings a very important perspective to the war on drugs, I think, as a whole. But especially looking at this from a freedom standpoint, from a what could this look like in a more free society? You know, I, I think uh, just shouting from the rooftops, legalize cocaine or legalize all drugs, you know, that scares a lot of people. And it scares a lot of people because they can't picture what it would be like. You know, uh, I, there's a famous moment from a uh, uh, an old GOP debate with Ron Paul. I think it was from the second time he ran in the GOP primary in 2012. And he's the during the one debate and they ask him, well, Ron, uh, are you talking about legalizing all drugs? Uh, would you legalize heroin? Oh, we got you. And uh, Ron pretty much goes, uh, yeah, yeah, I, I would. Um, and the crowd starts booing. And he goes, what, are you all afraid if it's legal? Are you all afraid that you're going to start doing heroin? And I don't know, maybe people are afraid of that. Uh, I think it's completely ridiculous. Um, the market would be 
Honestly, it was hard to even imagine what it would be like in this country with drugs legalized. One thing I can promise you is you would have much safer products. You would have much, much less, a vast amount fewer of uh, overdoses, almost down to zero. And you would have less addiction. I can guarantee you of all that stuff. How everything would be organized and what people would take, I have no idea. I'm, I'm not a mind reader and I'm not uh, someone who, who plans societies. So this stuff would just work itself out. And a lot of people are very afraid of any sort of change, even if they know that over time um, it would make things a lot safer and, and a lot better for uh, for everyone in, in society. So, you know, it's an important topic and that's why I talk about it. Not the easiest topic to really hash out with the, uh, the old everyday American, but Anywho, that's why you have shows like Felony Friday. That's why you should share this episode with uh, all your friends, liberals, conservatives, progressives, moderates, all the peoples. Share this up. Uh, send them the uh, the link to the, the podcast you're, you're using. You can just go and share it from there. You can share it. This will be on YouTube as well. Just the audio. I don't think we'll have the video. Or uh, you can share it on Facebook. We post this on our Facebook page, Lines of Liberty. We'll post it on Twitter. And, uh, of course, you can always talk about this episode. Any of the stuff we talk about on, uh, on Lions of Liberty, any of our episodes are always posted in our Lions of Liberty forum, along with all kinds of other stuff that we talk about there. It's on Facebook. You can find it by going to the old Facebook, punching Lions of Liberty forum in the search bar at the top. It pops up. You click join. We look at your face. If you have a real face and not a cartoon profile picture, we probably let you in. There's one question. You have to answer. If you don't answer the one question, you won't get in either. So do that. And I've rambled for long enough. One more thing. Join the Lions of Liberty Pride by going to patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty. Join it if you like this and if you want to support us and if you want us to, you know, really improve this show, make it better, um, add more stuff to it. And then guess what? We need your support. So patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty. You guys are awesome. Thank you so much for listening. This is John Odermatt signing off. Always remember to keep your head up and the fires of liberty burning.